We want to cover the second rule of hermeneutics tonight. We did the first one several weeks ago. We want to move to the small context. How do we understand the Bible? What are the rules that the Bible teaches that we try to follow when we read and interpret the Bible? We do not hold things differently in this church because we want to be different. We hold things differently in this church because the Bible has told us by its own internal rules how we ought to understand the Bible. What was the first rule from a number of weeks ago? There are no contradictions. No contradictions in the Bible. We gathered that from 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 where it said, knowing this first, the no private interpretations. All verses are reconciled to fit the whole. Very important first rule. Remember that first rule is to make sure what the verse does not mean. It's a two-step approach to Bible study. What the verse does not mean by rule number one and what the verse does mean by all the other rules of study that come after that, including number two. There can be no private interpretations, as Peter would put it. The whole Bible teaches one body of truth, so there can't be disagreement by one verse. We first, this is what I just said, get rid of what it does not mean. The two-step approach to Bible study. What it does not mean, what it does mean. Because if you'll rule out what it does not mean by the rest of Scripture, then you've only got a few alternatives left to pick from for what it does mean. Two-step Bible study. So now we're moving to the small context after no contradictions. This is a picture of a galley ship, a slave ship, where the slaves are rowing in unison and they're usually chained in place so that if they don't row fast enough to win the victory, then they go down with the ship. Fair arrangement. If they were criminals, and they were common criminals, but you would be highly motivated to row with all your might. You'd be surprised at how little lactic acid affects you when you're chained to a ship that could go down unless you row. We are slaves to context. This is rule number two. We are slaves to context. The words that are around a verse, the sentences around a verse, we're slaves to it, and we want to serve this master. And I want you to remember the little example that we have for it is, I beat my wife last night. If you hear me say that, or you find some little scrap of paper or a text or something where I said I beat my wife last night, I hope you'll want to ask for a few words around it. There he is, Charlton Heston. We are slaves to context, and we want to serve it. I beat my my wife last night. That beat could mean all kinds of things. How do we know what it means? Got to have other words around it. That sentence doesn't help you. The grammar of that sentence doesn't do you a bit of good. Grammar is worthless without context. Context is so much more important than grammar. Context determines grammar. Context determines word meaning. In a spelling bee in school, when you were given the word bored, what should you do? Teacher, please use it in a sentence or you are in serious trouble. And that sentence is the context for the word board, so that you would know whether it should be spelled B-O-R-E-D or B-O-A-R-D. And B-O-A-R-D could have a whole lot of different meanings, couldn't it? Oh, yes. Okay, there he is again. I love being a slave to context, and I need you to also love context with me, because that's how we're going to study the Bible. That's me, slave to context. A text used out of context is a pretext. So one thing I want you to remember, that this is the second rule, smaller context, 
I beat my wife last night. By remembering that, she'll remember context. And I want you to remember this sentence about context. A text used out of context is a pretext. So let's look at it a different way. A text used out of context is a pretext. And how about this way? A text used out of context is a pretext. Text is a word, a clause, a verse, a paragraph that you want to study and know what it means. The text. Right now it's John 9. Context is information around it showing the intent of the text. Context would be the other things that I said that would tell you how I beat my wife last night. Whether I beat her to bed or I beat her in checkers or in some other way, which we'll soon discover. Out of context means using words against the author's intent by ignoring what was given to you around the text. Pretext means a false impression designed to hide truth. It's pretending something. It's a pretext. So a text out of context is a pretext. It's a joke. We find the context and doctrine of the whole Bible. The whole Bible, that's rule number one. Rule number one is really context. It's just the context of the whole 31,102 verses. Then and only then do we move to the small context. After ruling out what a verse cannot mean by the whole Bible, we then look to the small context of what's right around that verse to help us understand it. A text used out of context is a pretext. We're slaves to context. Brother Singh is the one over there in Malaysia that observed that very early about us, that we were slaves to context, and he loved to write me repeatedly and say, I can see again you're a slave to context. Yes, we are. A text used out of context is a pretext. So, we make the small context our second rule. Now, that's ranking it pretty high. Rule number two, after no contradictions in the Bible, is the small context. And there's reasons for that. What else is going to get there? Don't, don't tell me about definitions of words. Do you know what determines definitions of words? Context. Do you know what determines grammar? Context. All writings of all kinds require context for meaning. Whether you write or the Lord wrote, it requires context. Words are worthless without context, thus the spelling bee. You do not like your words being used out of context. A verse outside its intent is a lie even from the Bible. And I love to remind us of this, the wrong verse, wrong verse for a true point is the first step to heresy. You have a true point, your doctrine's correct, you're using the wrong verse for it, that kind of latitude and looseness and using the Bible is going to get you in heresy. What is context? Context is surrounding information that tells us what an author means by individual words, sentences, or paragraphs within a passage. It's the surrounding information. Without grasping the author's viewpoint, if we don't grasp the author's viewpoint and intent, we will face words and phraseology that we will confuse or corrupt because we need to know what the intent is by that author. Every word in the Bible is part of a verse. Every verse is part of a paragraph. Every paragraph is part of a chapter. Every chapter is part of a book. Every book is part of a testament, and each testament is part of the whole Bible. It all fits together. Which of the previous sentences was rule number one? Right there. Each testament is part of the whole Bible. We cannot and must not isolate single words and sentences like so many like to do. They want a soundbite. They want a mantra. 
They want a motto. They want a little phrase to hang over their pulpit on some big banner. That's how they use the Bible nowadays. We don't want any of that. We want to know what the words mean in their context. Their setting, which is their context, determines their meaning. Not the words that make them up. It's not the words, it's the context that determine what the words mean. Your own words have been used out of context. And we, we haven't liked it. A single word, sentence, or document of yours was singled out and given a meaning that did not agree with all the words, expressions, tones, circumstances, audience, acts, or facts surrounding it, so they misrepresented you. You didn't like it when it happened. It could have been a text. And you know, the way people text, that could happen pretty easily, couldn't it? It could have been an email. You were offended, so was the Lord, when we do it to Him by misusing His words in the Bible. So we should resent a verse being used out of context. We want it in its context and explained by its context. Isolating individual words, isolating them, pulling them out because you want a sound bite. You like this little phrase. is like giving an impression of a Rembrandt from looking at one square inch of it. Have you ever looked at one square inch of the best paintings in the world? You wouldn't know a single thing about that painting. Or Handel's Messiah by listening to a few bars of it. That wouldn't explain Handel's Messiah to you. You've missed the context. If you hear me say, I beat my wife last night, please inquire further than the word beat. And this one sentence to find out what I actually did to her. We don't play Monopoly, so it was high-intensity interval training, baby. It could also have been ten other things. It is a shame and sin that much preaching today uses words and verses as mantras, mottos, or sound bites without regard to their context. That's why we're different. That's why we believe different things, because we don't use the Bible the way so many use it. He that endureth, the, he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Isn't that the neatest little mantra you ever heard? Calvinists just love that little thing. They pull that out of Matthew 24. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. They don't have a clue about it. I don't care if his name is John, his first name is John, his last name is Calvin. They don't have a clue about it because they want to use sound bites rather than contextual statements of God that we know what he meant. What did he mean? Matthew 24, 13. The same that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Enduring to the end of what? The destruction of besieging, the siege of Jerusalem. The same shall be saved. Jesus was giving them a warning. Flee to the mountains. Hope that it's not on the Sabbath day. Hope that you're not nursing. Blah, you know, all this practical advice. It has nothing to do with eternal life. It has nothing to do with the P of tulip of perseverance of the saints. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The number of people that fall on Matthew 24, 13 is some proof of P of tulip of the Calvinists. The Bible says Judas went and hanged himself. The Bible says, Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. Jesus said, that thou doest, do quickly. Should we connect those statements? Should we do it right now or later tonight? This is taking statements out of context. That thou doest, do quickly, wasn't said to us. How do I remember context? Six questions. Who can solve? I'm not, I don't have time. Who? Whom? What, why, when, where? Those are the six questions that you ask, and here are Bible examples. Drink not wine, nor strong drink. 
Leviticus 10.9, drink not wine nor strong drink. Why do we drink wine and strong drink? Because to whom is it written? The priests, when they were going to go in and offer a sacrifice, and only then. The rest of the time, what kind of wine did the priests drink? The best wine of Israel, because it was brought as the tithe. And so forth and so on. We could go through all of these examples. Who, whom, who wrote it, to whom is it written, what is the actual style and genre of the writing, why was it written, when was it written, and where was it written, where did it occur? Do you know how important that is with Hebrews? The whom of Hebrews? The where of Hebrews? The when of Hebrews? Incredible to open up that book. Heresies due to ignoring small context or legion. The word of God in Hebrews 4.12, we know it so well must be Jesus by the content and the context of the next two verses. The word of God is quick. Jesus is alive, powerful. Jesus has all power given to him in heaven and earth, sharper than any two-edged sword, which is proceeding out of his mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ, piercing the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The Bible can't do that. Joints and marrow is a discerner. That's all in the content of the verse, which is the small context for sure. It's got to be the Lord Jesus Christ up here, not the Bible. When we go to the context, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, the eyes of him with whom a high priest, the Son of God. So we're told it's not a thing, it's a person. It's not the written Bible, it's the living Christ. And we're told in the context. But how many men have missed on Hebrews 4.12? Most somewhere between 97 and 99%. Don't understand the word of God in Hebrews 4.12. Shaking in Haggai 2, 6 and 7 is now long past by the temple in context. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once, it is a little while and I will shake, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. When did that shaking take place? You know, it's future tense, I will shake. This is Haggai writing 400 B.C., I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. That's got to be the second coming, right? Because everything's future if you're a futurist, because it's in the future tense. And I will fill this house with glory. What house? This house. The book of Haggai was a prophet stirred up to encourage Zerubbabel to build the second temple. And in this context, it's called the latter house, and Solomon's was the former house, and the latter house was destroyed in 70 A.D., so therefore this passage had to be fulfilled before 70 A.D., and it was when the desire of all nations came the first time and was carried by his mother into that temple, and he went into that temple, and he tore the veil in that temple and made peace in that place, which is the rest of this context. Yes, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Zerubbabel's pitiful little temple was greater than Solomon's because the desire of all nations visited Zerubbabel's temple will fill this house, not a third house, the second house, the house that was destroyed in 70 A.D. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. Well, when you've got the words latter and former, how many are under consideration? Three or four? Two, Solomon's Zerubbabel's. And here we are. We're not futurists. Are we not futurists because we hate dispensationalists? Are we not futurists because we just like to be different? We're not futurists because of Haggai and reading it in its context. But I say unto you in Matthew 5, but 
I say unto you, in Matthew 5, is not against the law, but against the scribes. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, what, what came before that? Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Is that Bible? That's Matthew 5.21. Why in Matthew 5.22, why in Matthew 5.22 does Jesus say, but I say unto you, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, was Jesus contradicting Moses? Not at all. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, the rabbinical learning of the Jews and their corruption of thou shalt not kill is what Jesus corrected by expanding it out to the way God originally and fully intended it. And that was to cover being angry with your brother without a cause was to violate the sixth commandment as well. Falling from grace in Galatians 5.4 is only from the knowledge of grace in context. It's from the knowledge of grace. You can't fall from grace, but you can fall from the knowledge of grace. It's to be deconverted. We believe in unconverted elect, and we believe in deconverted elect. When they fall from their proper understanding, like they did in the churches of Galatia. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. The words are that we can fall from grace. Ye are fallen from grace. It doesn't say ye are fallen from the knowledge of grace. It doesn't say you're fallen from the doctrine of grace. It says you're fallen from grace. But it also says you're justified by the law. <laughs> is anyone really justified by the law? Or is that only in their heads? So every one of you that thinks you're justified by the law in your heads, ye are fallen from grace because you no longer have a place in your theology or soteriology for grace. Because you think it's by works. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Are there any denominations, are there any whole denominations that think Galatians 5.4 tells us that we can lose our salvation? Are there? Yes, indeed. Church of Christ. Campbellites are a great example. That's a little longer than we need. Greater glory is found by the small context. Greater glory. Words, like more sure, take on greater value when compared to God's voice. We love 2 Peter 1.19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. But more is a comparative word. More sure than what? Verse 16. God speaking from heaven to Peter in the presence of James, John, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. When the, the Bible's more sure than that? Yes. Then it takes on greater glory because we look at the context to figure out more is a comparative word I've got to have two things for the use of more. God speaking from heaven and the Bible. Charity is greater when seen as more excellent than being an apostle. Everyone loves 1 Corinthians 13. If I said, what's the chapter of love? What's the love chapter? What's the charity chapter? Everyone knows 1 Corinthians 13, but the last four verses of chapter 12 are beautiful. There's a more excellent way of serving Christ than being an apostle. It's learning how to love the Bible way. You know why I'm flipping through some of these, don't you? We did it once last week, and we can do it this week. Going faster than would be desired. Pronouns and antecedents are related by the small context. Psalm 119, 98, we all know this verse. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. Plural, pronoun, 
plural antecedent. Oh, so we get wise by always having enemies. No, because the plural antecedent is commandments. Your commandments are ever with me. I'm always meditating and obeying your word. And that's what makes me wise. Are are you with me? This is fun. Psalm 105. This is the history of Egypt. Israel. Let's find out. And did eat up all the herbs in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He smote also all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. Who is that, would you guess? Egypt. He brought them forth also with silver and gold. And there was not one feeble person among their tribes. How can it be Israel? I've got a pronoun, and the previous pronoun is Egypt, and the previous pronoun... Are you telling me that it jumps all the way back to Israel? Oh, yes. Well, how do we figure that out? By living on this side of the exodus out of Egypt and knowing the history of the event. What if you had never known about the exodus of Israel out of Egypt and you had these verses? You'd combine them. You wouldn't know, what, you wouldn't know how to make sense of it, but it's the small context. The proud have digged pits for me, which are not after thy law. All thy commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Plural pronoun. Commandments. When was the last time commandments persecuted you wrongfully? Do do commandments persecute? Or are we jumping all the way back to the proud? Strange uses of names and things are in the small context. Hebrews 4.8 For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Why did David in Psalm 95 tell Israel that there was a rest coming long after the land of Canaan was given to them? Is the, is the argument. For if Jesus, if you were reading your Bible quickly, or the average Christian was reading their Bible slowly, they would think that this was talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Who is it? Joshua. Joshua. Because Jesus' real name is Joshua. And Joshua, from Hebrew to Greek to English, is Jesus. This is Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest in the land of Canaan, then David wouldn't have written Psalm 95, except Psalm 95 has a better rest coming. And it's not Canaan. It's the gospel rest of knowing Jesus Christ finished his work. This is the generation of them that seek him. I remember Chris Carnell writing me about this many years ago because he, he wanted to write a song. He was writing a song based on the words of Psalm 24, and he wanted to just work over the word Jacob. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. This is a psalm. This is hundreds and hundreds of years after Jacob. What are people seeking the face of Jacob for? Who do the people of God seek? God. This is the God of Jacob. Why doesn't it say that? It doesn't have to. Why don't you read it and figure out with a small context? We had fun that day. I remember it well. Hosea. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Hosea. 500 years after David lived are going to seek David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. In the latter days, was there a king raised up to Israel called the son of David? Could he be called David? Why not? The Lord did it repeatedly. This is just one example. But we're forced to it by the context. It can't be the literal David. It's got to be a metaphorical one. Prophetic perspective. You know, the charismatics love this one. Acts chapter 2. 
It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. It shall come to pass. Future tense. It shall come to pass. I will pour out. Future tense. What is the context of this statement? This is that which was spoken of Joel. Joel wrote it in the future tense because it was future to Joel. Peter said, this is that. Context, context, context. Context sets grammar and word meanings. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and raw manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. The faith of Christ, the love of God, doesn't prove anything by those words. The faith of Christ sometimes is the doctrine of Christ, faith in Christ, faith of Christ, love of God. Sometimes it's God's love for us. Sometimes it's our love for God. How do you know the difference? Not by the grammar, because the grammar doesn't change and the words don't change. It's forced by the context. What is this? They were passing, ye tithe, you guys are good at tithing, but you're passing over one, judgment, and two, the love of God, these two things ought ye to have done. So it was their love for God, but it's the words, the love of God. Is it God's love for them or their love for God? How do you know? By the context, the context. We're slaves to context. I beat my wife last night. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Well, here's the context, good thing. What's the rest of the context of the book of Proverbs? There's a whole lot of bad wives out there, and getting one of them isn't finding a good thing. So when it says, whoso findeth a wife, you understand that as whoso findeth a good wife. The sense of Scripture needs the small context. We had a minister, a member of this church, that didn't think you could sell a dog. You couldn't sell a dog. You had to give it away. Because the Bible says, Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow. You can't sell a dog because you can't have a price of a dog. What's the context? Let's go back and get the whole context by adding the previous verse. There shall be no whore. Whore, whore. Hire of a whore. Of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite, Dog. You're never going to get that in a dictionary. I don't care if you use the English, the, the Oxford English Dictionary or any other dictionary. You're not going to get the definition of a dog equaling that, but that's the Bible definition of the word dog. How do we know it? We don't need a dictionary. We just need to read the Bible. And remember that rule number two is small context because it's right there telling us exactly. Look at the parallelism. Whore, whore, sodomite, dog. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know why I'm doing this? There's lots more on this topic of the second rule of Bible study right there at that link. What about John 8, 7? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. It cannot mean what most everyone says it means by the large context of rule number one. Otherwise, nobody could judge if they ever had sinned. It means without sin against due process for capital punishment by following the rules of smaller context. So that the verse should be understood this way. He that is without sin among you in this legal matter, he that is without sin among you in this capital charge, let him first cast a stone at her. Because they were breaking every rule that Moses had ever given them, though they had appealed to Moses when they first approached Christ. Moses said this woman should be stoned. What about John 9, 3? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. 
What does rule number one tell us? They had sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But what a verse we've got. The man born blind hadn't sinned and his parents hadn't sinned. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. They had not sinned. It cannot mean what it sounds like it means with a large context because all have sinned. It means the man born blind was not born that way due to his sins or his parents' sins because by looking back at the previous verse, that the question was, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So those words tell us what verse 3 means. We first get rid of what a verse does not mean. We then find what it does mean by rules like context. There are many more rules of Bible interpretation, but number two is context. We're Bible Christians four ways. We believe what it claims about its inspiration. We believe 66 books of the King James Version by canonicity. Just coming together by God's providential care, there is no reason for it. The epistle to the Laodiceans was excluded. The epistle to the Colossians was included, though both churches swapped their epistles. And both are mentioned in the New Testament. We believe word-level truth by preservation. He'll preserve his words, and we give the sense by its own rules of interpretation. We're Bible Christians four ways. Number 380 in your Burgundy hymnals. Number 380 in your Burgundy hymnals. And we're singing this to Jonathan and Christina and family and to all of you to put your trust in the Lord. Burgundy hymnals number 380. 